Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And you're hearing us from the Coming Home Network International Studio in Central Ohio. And uh, Ken and I have been working through the Book of Romans. We're now today going to look at uh, a section in the middle of Romans chapter 8. And Ken, I'd almost say that this is the middle of the book of Romans. Mm. Uh, uh, I don't know if you would say it's the peak <laughs> of Romans, mm. though in, in a couple verses we're going to get to that wonderful verse where Paul will say nothing can separate us from the love of God or where he says, you know, all things work together for good for those that love God and called according to his purpose. We're almost to those verses. So maybe that's, that's the peak of Romans. Although some might say Romans 12, 1 is the peak of Romans uh, about uh, 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 making our, 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 our bodies, uh, you know, our, uh, the worship of God. But uh, we're going to look at this section today in which, and I'm glad you're here, Ken, because you're here to make sure that my ramblings uh, uh, fit the entire context of Romans, because as I was looking at this passage uh, I was finding myself being drawn back into that great privilege that I once had of a pulpit on Sunday morning, and when it, this text could be the, the text for a sermon, and I would have loved the opportunity to preach this text again, because there's so much in this text that, yeah. that really speaks to us today living out our faith. And I know that, that Romans, the reason we're doing this is because I know that it's such an important book in your own life, Ken. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, I mean, I think uh, as as a Reformed or uh, Calvinistic pro- Protestant, uh, the Book of Romans, of course, is considered to be the the book that uh, was sort of began the Reformation when when Luther realized or said to himself, you know, that justification by faith is the key to the gospel, and he then put a little extra uh, added part on that. They changed it. In fact, justification by faith alone. Um, but there's no doubt about it. The, the book of Romans is maybe sometimes called the Magna Carta, the great charter of the Christian life. Uh, and in chapter 8, we're right here in the midst of, as you said, we're digging deep right now into the uh, <clears throat> the heart of what it means to live a Christian life as Paul is calling us to a deeper life of holiness. On the worksheet, which you can see on the Internet page, if you go to deepinscripture.com and if you're listening to us on the internet, we try and post the worksheet that we use uh, to guide our discussion. I've put some key points that, uh, that Ken and I believe are, are uh, kind of rising out of this beautiful passage, powerful passage, um, that really are based on all that has come before in Romans. The danger of scripture study or of preaching from scripture is to take a passage and the power of a passage, but to extract it from its context. And then the danger is of, of through private interpretation is to read into that passage other meanings or other applications. And we don't want to do that. It's, it's absolutely mm-hmm. essential that whenever you interpret any scripture passage, that you interpret it within its immediate context, the context of the entire book, the context of the entire Bible, as well as the context of 
in the entire tradition of the church to make sure that the interpretation is in line. And Ken, there are going to be a couple of verses in this uh, that I think are particularly important to interpret within the wider tradition of the church, especially in the section we'll get to about suffering. Because that was one of the sections, Ken, that I ignored as a Presbyterian mm-hmm. pastor. Uh, I did not know what to, how to deal with the place of suffering in the life of the Christian. Mm-hmm. Paul says well, here, oh, go ahead, Ken. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, Paul, certainly, uh, it's it's startling in the sense that in chapter 8, Paul is clearly leading us into, okay, what does it mean to walk the Christian walk? What does it mean to live in the Spirit? And it's interesting that in that context, he doesn't in any way exclude um, suffering, but in fact talks about suffering as being an essential part of the Christian life. And I think that's interesting in the light of the fact that it may not have struck um, past generations of Christians, but uh, as odd because I think they they understood better what it meant to be a Christian, both Catholic and Protestant and Orthodox. Uh, but today, what we have is a gospel in which people imagine being a Christian is automatically expunging any kind of suffering from their lives, which is simply not true according yeah. to the scriptures. Yeah, in fact, uh, you can turn on television or radio almost any hour of the day and find some preacher who has interpreted the gospel to mean that a life in Christ therefore means no suffering, means wealth, means accumulation of blessings, uh, and that if your life involves suffering or you're not experiencing wealth or blessings, then therefore there's something wrong with your faith or your relationship with Christ. And that's completely contrary to the text that we're looking at today. The five points, just in summary as we jump into this passage, that seem to Uh, be the keys to this particular passage are these. They deal with, number one, that we are debtors. Number two, we need to understand what it means that we are children of God and therefore fellow heirs with Christ. Number three, that we are therefore to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh, that choose to do that. Number four, and we are to accept suffering as a necessary aspect of what it means to be debtors and children of God. And number five, after 2,000 years, the world, the creation, is still waiting to see this happen. Still waiting to see us live this out. So let's take a step back then and look at point one. We are debtors. Now this is Romans chapter 8 verses, we're looking at 12 through 13 today. But verse 12, So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So point one, so then, brethren, we are debtors. Ken, give us the gist of this wonderful word, debt. Why are we debtors? What does it mean that we are debtors? Well, isn't it interesting here that Paul should choose a word like debtor, uh, because it it harkens back to actually the very beginning verse of the whole letter, back to chapter one, verse one, where Paul says, "Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ," and the word "doulos." There were a number of words in in ancient Greek for for uh, servant, 
Um, due loss was a very strong term. It may be what we knew of in the modern, modern world as indentured servanthood or even slavery. Um, what Paul is saying, I think here, is that we all live under some kind of for authority. We all live under some kind of uh, umbrella, as it were, of authority. And the, the, the movement from unjustified to being justified, that is to use to, to, from a state of sin to a state of grace, um, is a, a movement from one type of uh, servanthood to another. But the, but the wonderful thing about the new servanthood or the new slavery in Jesus Christ is that it liberates us from things. What is it, what is it liberate us from? That's why he says that we are no longer debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In chapter 8, Marcus, remember the last time we were talking about chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, Paul there put out this strong contrast between the mindset of the spirit and the mindset of the flesh. The, he said that the result of having the mindset of the flesh is death, which reminds us of what he said in chapter uh, 7, I think it was, at the very end of chapter 7, uh, no, the end of chapter 6, when he says that the wages of sin is death. That's the final result of of living a sinful life. And in contrast to that, there's the mindset of the Spirit, which is life and peace. So as I mentioned, these two umbrellas, there's the mindset or there's the umbrella living under the, the mindset of, fl- of the flesh. By that, he means the sinful nature. Or the mindset of the Spirit living under the influence of the Spirit. That leads to life and to peace. So Paul now is drawing the conclusion. If our listeners have the Bibles in front of them, they'll notice that verse 12 begins with therefore. And so we ask, what's therefore, therefore? It's therefore because he's drawing the conclusion of this contrast between life in the spirit and life according to the flesh. And now he wants to draw out what that means, that we're still debtors, but now we're debtor debtors to a life of liberation, a life that's liberated from the ravages of sin and is able to live in the freedom of the children of God. I remember seeing a number of years ago, Ken, it was, there was a popular bumper sticker. Um, if you remember, it said, I found it. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. Uh-huh. It, it was an evangelistic campaign, and all that the sticker said was, I found it. Yeah. Now, behind that sticker, I assume, that campaign was a, a, a sincere desire to prick the interest of somebody driving down the road and wondered, well, what does that mean, you know, or whatever. And, and of course, it was about salvation in Jesus Christ is what the sticker right. was all about. But the more I th- looked back on that idea, there's, there's the borderline of bad theology there. I found it. Uh, I found yeah. him. Or is it he found me? Um, yeah. And I think at the core of thinking about reflecting on that uh, cuts through layers 
down to the core of how we understand our salvation in Jesus Christ. Was it us that found him or he that saved us? And this is, I believe, very, very important because it, depending on how one understands uh, their salvation in Jesus Christ, can be the foundation for an entire culture, uh, not just a, how a, a local preacher understands the gospel and the local congregation understands it, or a denomination understands it, or an entire church understands it, but how an entire culture is shaped as to how one understands the gift of the salvation. And to me, it's all wound up in that phrase, we are debtors. Because behind that phrase, we are debtors, is a previous statement that was in Romans chapter 5, in which he says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's connected with what Paul said back in Ephesians, when he says, it's by grace we have been saved through faith and not by our works. That's the summary of that. Meaning, mm -hmm. it wasn't that when these people were pagans that they found Jesus because of their intellect and therefore because of their good works. Therefore, God rewarded them with plucking them out of their pagan life and bringing them into Christianity. No, it had nothing to do with their intellect, nothing to do with their good works, their good life. But while they were... Uh, what's the word in uh, yeah. Amazing Grace? Scum. While they were yeah. worms, while they were yet lost, God in his love reached them. And therefore, they are now debtors. We are debtors because every, and again, this was Augustine's idea of grace that Luther and Calvin seemed to go a little bit too far. But still, it all goes back to every single thing that we have in Jesus Christ has been a gift of grace. And therefore, we should be drawn to our knees because we are debtors. Well, as you as you were talking about the um, <clears throat> giving this wonderful explanation of the theology of grace, which the church, the Catholic Church, uh, believes very fully is... Um, is what uh, is true that we are saved by grace as you were talking about and that I I couldn't help but think back about the famous poem uh, by Francis Thompson called the hound of heaven oh yeah uh, where he says you know I fled him him being capitalized being Christ I fled him down the nights and down the days I fled him down the arches of the years I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears, I hid from him, and under running laughter, and a visited hopes I sped, and so forth. He goes on to say, um, he he's expressing how in our sinful nature we want to flee, we want to go away from God, but grace, God's lone life, is what brings us back into the state of grace. I have known about this poem. Actually, I knew about this poem a long time before I became a Catholic. But I didn't know that Francis Thompson was a Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> and that this poem is reflects a Catholic theology. Um, it's also interesting to know that Francis Thompson, however, did 
struggle very profoundly with both depression and alcoholism. And so this is the cry of a man's heart who um, is realizing that without Christ, he is nothing. But with Christ, he can be everything. And I think that expresses what Paul's saying here, that being debtors to God means that we owe everything to him. There's nothing we should hold back from him because he's given us everything, as Peter will later say, everything necessary for life and godliness and holiness. Reminds me, oh, Ken, thank you for that. It reminds me of a verse in in Romans 6 previously where Paul says in verse 16, uh, do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, right. either of sin or of righteousness? So this, who are we indebted to right now in our lives? If we just take a step back and ask ourselves everything that we have, who are we indebted to? Who do we feel obligated to? And the danger is, he's saying, if you feel obligated to the flesh, in other words, if you give credit to the flesh for what you have, you'll live according to the flesh because you feel obligated. You feel like you ought to continue in that, fulfill that, repay that, um, an obligation. However, if you are obligated, if you feel indebted to the Spirit, who has changed our lives, then there is the fulfilling of that obligation, that indebtedness. And so there's kind of behind this, who do you feel indebted to? And sadly, Ken, we're later going to get to creation is still waiting to see us live out our obligations that we have been entrapped in a culture that is totally indebted to the flesh and to the world and to... um, you know, everything, investments and all that, we owe, we trust our entire future to where we have placed mm-hmm. our trust. And we're all hoping that in 20 years, the money we put away is going to be able to take care of you and I in our old age. But is it going to be yeah. there? Who are we trusting? Who are we indebted yeah, right. to? Mm-hmm. Well, this is the beautiful thing about the Catholic teaching about detachment in the spiritual life that we're not... We're not ultimately putting our trust in those, uh, you know, those, those bank accounts or those retirement accounts. They may very well be gone by some stroke of uh, misfortune that might happen to us or to uh, the economy as a whole. Um, and at the same time, um, Paul here is, is I think, telling us in order to understand our indebtedness to God. We also have to realize that we are truly his children, living under um, an umbrella of filial love rather than... F- yes. Um, the We all know both as children and as adults raising children that children can relate to their parents in two ways, one through fear, the other through love. And <clears throat> Paul here is saying... Like in verse 15, you've not received a spirit of slavery. You're a debtor, but but it's not like the way a, a slave may feel. That leads to fear, but it's a spirit of sonship. And the sonship cries, Abba, Father. In other words, hey, it's a cry for intimacy with God. And that's ultimately what we want. 
in that respect, I think Pope Benedict, um, for some reason I've been able to relate to him very well. As I read his writings, it was very clear that what he said about his books about Jesus has uh, also reflected his whole life. And that is, this is when he wrote the books about Jesus, the three books, you know, he said, this is my personal search for the face of the Lord. And that's what Paul's talking about. When he talks about Abba, Father, he's reflecting the Old Testament search for the face of the Lord. You know, Ken, um, I I may be wrong in in one of my interpretations, which I've been certainly wrong a gazillion times. Just ask my wife. But uh, um, (laughs) to me, what he's talking about here in the the second point that we're looking at, and that is our our sonship. Um, I sometimes feel that part of what our Lord and the Apostle Paul, we're trying to emphasize is that our Christian understanding of ourselves in relationship to God is indeed different than the way the Hebrews understood themselves. And and what I mean by this is this movement from seeing ourselves as sheep under a shepherd mm-hmm. to, to seeing ourselves as children of a father. And certainly the, the image of the good shepherd and you know, the lost sheep are important images that we get from Old Testament images from Psalm 23 and others. And um, it's brought out in the call for priests and bishops to be good shepherds of the sheep. But I really believe that it's important to see the, the movement in understanding ourselves from being sheep under a shepherd to being children of a father. And I believe that that is a uniquely Christian understanding that was not there in the Old Testament understanding of, mm. of, uh, of the people of God. Uh, or at least we see, uh, you know, like a teeter-totter, you know, stronger on the, on the children's oh, yes. side than, than the sheep side. Mm. Now, the reason I emphasize this is <clears throat> I'm the worst farmer that ever lived, but I've raised sheep, and I think I think my chickens are smarter than the sheep. Um, uh, certainly, the pig is the smartest animal in the farm lot, uh, maybe more than even the farmer at times. Uh, but uh, you know, for to me, a farmer is one of the most brilliant men on the face of the earth, and uh, we should have a good farmer as president of the United States. Excuse me. Uh, but um, but sheep are not all that smart, and you know they 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 they, they prance along a hillside and they're little puffy, uh, and they look so cute, and everyone thinks, boy, I'd love to be on a farm with all those puffy little sheep. And I'm just telling you, it's it's tough work raising sheep. And there's an alternate religion in our world, Islam, that has continued the idea of that we are slaves of God and has taken that image to be the primary image of understanding a believer's relationship to Allah is slavery. But that isn't the primary image of Christians, nor is it the sheep. It is this idea of sonship. And this, again, is what draws us to Paul makes such a big point of it here. And I personally think that 
He's trying to draw people away from the idea of being merely lemmings that follow God or sheep that are kind of uh, uh, herded around a field. Why are sheep herded? Because they're going to be slaughtered into meat. Well, that's not how we are before God. We are his children. And Ken, we've been alluding to this passage. Let me read it, and then you go on and reflect on the absolute essential nature, not only that we understand ourselves as debtors, but that we understand what it means to be children. For Paul said, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then jumping down a little bit, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is a spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Well, I think the, uh, <clears throat> I think the point you're making kept in balance is a very important one because there are different <clears throat> metaphors that Scripture uses to describe our relationship with God, that of sheep and the shepherd, uh, that of the slave and sir and master. But there all there sometimes are very, in fact there is there is one metaphor that is the central metaphor and that describes not only a comparison as all metaphors do, but <clears throat> It describes a reality that we are, and that is the relationship of father to child or father to son, father to daughter. In other words, it's not just a human metaphor that we're projecting on God when we call him father. He truly is the father of the family, the human family, and especially the new human family, the redeemed children of God. And that means that we truly are sons. We can be thought of as like servants. We can be thought of as sheep, but we truly are sons. We're not just can be thought of as sons. We are sons. And this is why he says, and the verse you just read, for those that are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons or they are the children of God. In other words, Paul is saying here that the spirit of slavery is kind of the metaphor. If you were a slave, you might feel like a slave. But he says what you really received is a spirit of, of sonship. So it's not just that we're like children. We truly are the children of God. All right. Thanks, Ken. Let's pause there. We're going to take a break. We'll come back after the break and talk about what does it mean that we are debtors and, the, and also sons and daughters of God and how that is called for us to live. You're listening to Deep in Scripture with, with myself, Marcus Grodi, and, and Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we'll see you in just a moment. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 
450-1175. Thank you. On the journey home, Marcus's guest is Matt DiMartino. See how this former fundamentalist Baptist left his faith tradition to find the true faith, the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Brodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. Just a reminder that uh, if you go to deepinscripture.com or um, the chnetwork.org org, excuse me, website, you can access all the old Deep in Scripture programs as well as all the other uh, programs and resources uh, and services that are available on the Coming Home Network website uh, and that connects with the work of the Coming Home Network. And we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at deepinscripture, at D-I-S, excuse me, D-I-S at chnetwork.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, you can also subscribe to the Coming Home Network at the Facebook page or one of those Twitter things, which I have not really gotten into yet, Ken, but... Uh, you know, this uh, passage, Ken, uh, Romans, specifically 14 through 17, about the sonship, a um, couple things, Ken, I want to pose to you. What is the significance when you talk, well, well, first of all, John in his first letter also emphasizes sonship, chapter 3, 1 John 3. In which John is saying, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there, uh, the Apostle John in his first letter is emphasizing the reality of the sonship. And it also reminds us back in John chapter, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in verse 12, when the apostle writes, But to all who received him and who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, so the apostle Paul, as well as the apostle John, really emphasize... Uh, Almost to extent, Ken, that this is more than a metaphor, right? I mean, I mean, slavery, mm, yes. that we're slaves of God or that we're his sheep or goats, depending on, on, mm. on whether we've been a good husband or father, um, are metaphors. And sadly, okay. some religions have taken those to be more than metaphors. It seems that Islam has taken the slavery 
a metaphor to mean more than a metaphor. And I doubt if people ever take the sheep and the goats to be more than a metaphor. Mm-hmm. But it seems that the emphasis here is that that the sonship needs to be understood as far more than a metaphor. It's a reality that should shape how we understand ourselves. And I'm wondering, Ken, when it says in 15 that you have received the spirit of sonship, that again, that's more than a, an attitude or an image, but that it relates yeah. to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we receive through baptism that changes us into the sonship that is a reality that we may not feel any different, but it's a reality that we have to remind ourselves of every day, and it should shape yes. how we live our lives. Well, this is why Paul is, and this is his whole method, you might say, his theological method, his pastoral method, is to uh, is to motivate us to live a, a holy life because by telling us who we truly are. And, uh, you know, I was reading something recently, um, I can't remember um, the name of the book, but it was in the, it was excerpted in the, um, in the Magnificat, the little, uh, you know, daily yep. devotional and, and mass guide. Um, and the book basically was saying, it took us back to the question that God asked Adam after Adam and Eve had sinned, uh, Adam, where are you? And the author was making the point that this is a fundamental question. I have to ask myself, where am I in relationship to God? That's very appropriate for Paul because Paul wants to, Paul in a sense is asking the same question. He's saying, you Christian, you dedicated to, you you who call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, where are you? Where Do you stand under the reign of sin, or do you stand under the reign of, of God in Jesus Christ? And what he's doing in chapter 8 is he's trying to say, you are a person who has not received a spirit of fear or a spirit of slavery. You've received a spirit of adoption or sonship. Now, the question is, um, how, or how do you know that? And he goes on to say, this spirit of adoption or the spirit of sonship, we know that because we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, the word Abba is a Aramaic word. It means like father or dad or daddy. Um, and so what he's saying, he, he's going back to a f- root of everything that the Christian is. And by the way, this word, uh, I think the reason why Paul is is saying the word or quoting the word here is because this word in Aramaic was passed on through Greek, through Latin, and it became a common word that all Christians were using. And what this is the cry of the child of God. Father, I want need you. And he, he, um, he, he's saying this because he's saying this is the fundamental definition of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and a child of God. It is to live in this spirit of sonship. Yeah, I'm back in, math, in Mark 14, when our Lord is on his knees, um, probably if, if you if you envision the sins of the world on his shoulder and he's accepting all these sins uh, 
and fully accepting the suffering that that will come in the crucifixion crucifixion our lord and his humanity willing to take that in that most desperate moment the first words that come out of his mouth are in verse 36 of mark 14 abba father all things are possible to thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. So our Lord, in his most intimacy, intimate cry to, to God the Father, those are the mm-hmm. terms he uses. And he invites us to do the same in the Our Father. And Paul is reminding us that that is an understanding of who we are, what kind of children we are. He goes on to use the word heirs of God, and the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, rich kids, Ken, you know, that are heirs of the great fortune, and as a result of that can be obnoxious and idiots and ungrateful, demanding, uh, thinking themselves better than other people. They're heirs, and they're the heirs of the great fortune. They're heirs Mm -hmm. of the kingdom. Uh, But... Paul reminds us that our understanding of sonship, we're heirs with Christ. And so we yeah. could uh, be arrogant. Uh, even Paul in his second letter to Corinthians kind of jokes about pride, boasting. Mm-hmm. And he's doing it tongue in cheek because at the core of it is that our sonship needs to be guided by our indebtedness to our Father. And to me, all that comes alive in that simple word, Abba. But the, the, uh, the idea of being heirs with God in Christ can needs to connect with all that's come before in Romans because it has to do with the fact that, that we are now dead to Christ and alive in the same resurrection he has experienced, we can experience the kingdom that uh, he has given. We are heirs to that kingdom. All of this are before us that we we recognize is ours as a result of our sonship. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the one thing that I like about the way that you've put that is that it's, Paul here clearly is saying in, in verse 17, when he says that we're for heirs, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. In other words, he's saying, as Paul did back in chapter 6, that that the essence of being a child of God is to be in relationship with the Father the way that Christ is. And so we become co-heirs with him uh, in, in the kingdom of God. Um, or as the liturgy of the church has sometimes put it, we are sons in the Son. By our union with Christ, we be, we stand in the same relationship uh, to the Father that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, does. And that's why, to hearken back what you said earlier about the metaphors and so forth, um, that's why we, we know that the sonship, is not just a metaphor, a mere literary metaphor. It's describing a metaphysical reality that we are truly the sons of God. And what that means is then that we're going to be living a life exactly modeled on the life of Jesus Christ. Now, that has a very important implication for understanding about this subject of suffering that you had brought up earlier. Uh, We can't 
if we're going to live, if we're going to relive, so to speak, the life of Jesus Christ in um, in this world, in our daily lives, if Christ is going to live through us, then that means that we will will and will have to experience the same things that Jesus Christ experienced, which include rejection and suffering, and in the midst of that, being dedicated to the mission that God has called us to do, which in his case was going to the cross, we too have a kind of cross that we have to be dedicated to in order to find that final liberation. Yeah, Ken, when I read this passage just a few moments ago, leading into our discussion of sonship and heirs, you may have noticed that I ended in the middle of a verse and read that we are children of God, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Period. Because, mm-hmm. Ken, that's the way I understood it back when I was a Presbyterian pastor, you know, an evangelical Calvinist, is that I mm-hmm. saw myself as a child of God and heirs, fellow heir with Christ. But I ended short of the rest of the sentence, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story, in which Paul says... Yeah provided we suffer with him. And that, to me, is absolutely essential. Our sonship with God is not some guaranteed inheritance or once saved, always saved presumption of eternity that has nothing to do with how we live the rest of our lives. And I know that those that teach the theology of Luther and Calvin that um, that that our life in, is a gift of grace and that we are totally depraved, have nothing to do, and since we had nothing to do with getting salvation, there's nothing we can do to lose it. That's the theology I used to teach. I know that they are not promoting the idea that therefore you can be a libertine and live your life as you want, because even Calvin, uh, particularly Calvin, uh, not so much the Zwinglian side of, Refor- of Reformed theology, but Calvin's side, emphasized that good works are a necessary expression that demonstrate our election. And so our lives should be different, and that's, that led to the Puritanism of, of New England America. But, but the point here is that our sonship is conditional. We That's truly right. are children of God, but our what we're heirs to, our inheritance is conditional, depending on how we live our lives. And he deals with that in two ways in this passage. One way has to do with whether we live by the Spirit or the flesh. That's one thing. And that's something that through our intellect, guided by grace, and our will, shaped by grace, still, though, leaves us the freedom to respond. You see, he leaves it as a choice in verse 13, that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by this, there's a condition there, if by the Spirit. But then secondly, there's also the condition in verse 17, if we suffer with him. Because he says the word provided. Now, Ken, I'm not sure what the Greek word behind that idea of provided we suffer, but I've listed in our worksheet a whole list of verses, Colossians 124, 
2 Corinthians 1, 5, and 7, 2 Timothy 2, 12, 1 Peter 4, 13, and particularly the Revelation 2 passages that all emphasize the conditional nature of our inheritance of eternal life, depending on whether, in fact, we live a life differently by grace. Well, you're absolutely right, because if we just attend very carefully to the words that are used here, he's saying, if indeed, or provided that, we suffer with him. In other words, um, our identification with Christ has to be total. It's not just that we're fellow heirs of the kingdom of God or the riches of the kingdom. We also have to be suffer with him. And we have to ask the question, what does it mean to suffer with him? And I think the best commentary on that is the commentary of the martyrs in the early church, people like St. Polycarp, who died in Smyrna around 150 or 155, people like St. Ignatius of Loyola, I mean, excuse me, of, of Antioch, who was um, killed in the Roman Forum around 110 or maybe 108 uh, A.D., what their writings suggest, and even the letter writings, is that that the, the martyrs realized that if they were going to be heirs of the kingdom of God at their death, they had also to be co-sufferers with Christ in this world by not denying him, by standing up with him, by identifying with him. And so this this uh, willingness to walk with Christ every step of the way, no matter what the cost, to condition for the hope of eternal life. And I think you very rightly point us to several statements here that Paul makes when he talks about if you don't uh, lead, if you don't put to death the deeds of the body, you, you won't live eternally. But if you do put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so what Paul is calling us to here is, first of all, a martyrdom against, um, a, a, martyrdom against a, uh, a self-centered life, a life that he calls the deeds of the flesh. Um, and then it's also a martyrdom uh, which puts away our selfishness in favor of or in allegiance to Christ. That's how we will discover that, that we indeed are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Ken, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Now, you be the scholar, and I'm just the old football player getting fat. And uh, <laughs> But I want you to look at the Greek in that, because I want to read this. Yeah. Because the way this is phrased in our scriptures is it seems to be a poem or a, a verse from a hymn. That's right, yeah. But mm -hmm. the point is that Paul, the aging Paul, in, in probably his last letter, is writing to Timothy, the young bishop, who has the responsibility of a church or churches under him. And Paul says, beginning at verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation in Christ Jesus with its eternal glory. And my point there in 2 Timothy 2.10 is that Paul is emphasizing how the suffering that he is enduring 
is for the benefit of the church. And he says that elsewhere, Colossians 1.24, he completes what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. Second Corinthians, he talks about how we suffer for one another, and our suffering has a benefit, uh, a reward, if you will, of grace for other people. And then he goes on in verse 11 of 2 Timothy 2 to say this, and Ken, I think it is even in the Greek, it seems to be in the repetition of certain words, a, a, a very powerful looking poem uh, in which he it says, the saying is sure, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly is, a, a, just in terms of literary form, a, a, a poetic kind of statement. Several times in the pastoral epistles, Paul uses this phrase in Greek, pistos logos, the saying is trustworthy, the saying is faithful. And then you give a quotation, and it's very clear that I think he's quoting from something that he expects his hearers to know. And part of that is that if we die with Christ, we will live with him. Now, this, the point that you were making before about discipleship is extremely important because he's making conditional statements here, right? If we suffer, if we die with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. And if we, but if we deny, that is deny him, he will deny us. Now, I think there in the denial part, he's talking about a complete and final denial. If we deny him, this is what the martyrs faced. Uh, For example, in the time of Cyprian, uh, those who, those, there was this huge controversy in the church about those that had denied Christ during persecution. But he says, if we deny him, he will deny us. But verse 13, where it says, if we are faithless, I think there he's talking about the fact, the faithlessness um, on a less than final basis, a temporary basis. If we stumble and fall and are unfaithful part, partially in our lives, he's still going to remain faithful uh, to us. And that clearly um, is a, related to what Paul then begins in chapter eighteen, uh, chapter eight, back in Romans, when he talks about the great suffering that we and even the creation is going through, as it awaits the glorious liberation of the children of God. And he doesn't define what this suffering is. Yeah. You know, it, it can be that we are persecuted because we are following him as our Lord, in his great expression of the new law in the Sermon on the Mount says in the end of the Beatitudes. He's a blesser of those who are persecuted uh, for doing what's right or for doing what's right in his name, on his account. He talks about that in the, in the end of the Beatitudes in chapter 5 of Matthew. Uh, so mm-hmm. it, that could be the suffering he's talking about. But he doesn't define it. Even when Paul addresses it in Colossians 1.24, he doesn't define what that suffering is. And it may be that the very suffering that he's talking about are the little moments of suffering that we struggle with in marriage, that we struggle with in parenting, that we struggle with in just living out our faith in this world, uh, in our neighborhood, in our work, 
in our environment, in our culture. And and to me, this brings us to this last point, Ken, because I know we're drawing to the close. You know, the five points that we pointed out from this passage, number one, that we're debtors, number two, that we're children of God and fellow heirs, number three, that we are therefore to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh, which involves number four, accepting the suffering that has. But number five is that after 2,000 years, the world, the creation, is still waiting to see us live this out. And verses 18 through 23 are all about the creation continuing to suffer for the revelation of the sons of God. I think that verse 19 really strikes me. It says the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Um, It's a very unusual word that Paul uses here where he talks about the uh, the it's it's as if the creation is on its tiptoes, waiting to see who the children of God are. Now, why would he do that? Well, partly it's because um, even what we see is the external. We see people going to church. We see people trying to live a good life, and all of that. But who are the true children of God? That actually will only be revealed to everyone on the day of the general judgment. And so what Paul is saying here is both um, uh, it's true, but it's also excitingly true that the the whole creation is waiting to see what the final church looks like. And that's the people of God who are the children of God, the sons and daughters of the Father. And they are, uh, the creation is waiting in eager expectation to see that day. And we live in a creation, in a world that is affected by our lives, by our choices. That's right. Uh, mm-hmm. By our sinfulness, by our selfishness, uh, the way we are stewards of the gifts God has given us affects the world around us, affects the lives of others, uh, affects the lives of people we'd never see. Uh, and as a result, the creation is awaiting us to be faithful sons and daughters of God. You might be able to pick up on that a little bit next week, Ken, because I think there's far more to this passage about what it means that creation is waiting, not only to see the true sons and daughters of God, but to be freed from its own bondage to decay. And it talks about the new earth and the new heaven that will one day be revealed uh, in the final fulfillment of all creation. Ken, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. And all of you, thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. I hope that it's been an encouragement to you. Go to deepinscripture.com to find out more about this program, and we'd love to hear from you. Send us your emails. God bless. Join you again next week.